Hey, everybody. How are you? It is. It is. It is. It is the 19th of January, 2023. My name is Luke Thomas. Let me make sure everything is hunky dory. Yes, it is. Okay. Um, it's the 19th of January, 2023, and this is episode 145 of my live chat. How are you doing? Hope you're doing well. Thank you for joining me. We will go as we customarily do for about an hour today with free questions. You can put a paid question in if you are so interested. You are certainly under no obligation to do that. But as you guys know, every Thursday, I excuse me, every Wednesday, I put up a post on the community tab here at youtube.com slash Luke Thomas. You guys fill it up with questions, and then we get to it from there. Um, on the docket today, I would imagine there's going to be a ton of Francis. I did see actually some bunch of uh, Francis and Ganu stuff. I'm going to guess John Jones. I'm going to guess some UFC 283, although they're really for a pay-per-view. And actually a pretty good card, not really a ton of buzz. So that's kind of noteworthy there. Um, but whatever's on your mind. Yeah? All right. So if you want to leave a donation with a question, you may. If not, let's get to this. We'll go for about an hour on the free questions, about a half hour on the paid. Um, yeah, let's do this. Yay, there we are. By the way, I want to uh, set one more reminder. You can see on the screen below. I should have to uh, fix that thing. But, um, right. Oh, yeah. See, I got the supposed to fill it in back there rather than being um should be white not clear but in any case uh you can put the, your screen up to the excuse me you can put your phone up to the screen right there off of the qr code if you want to get tickets to go see brian campbell and i for morning combat a live performance february 8th at king's place in london england probably our first well i've been there as a tourist but this is our first and probably only trip to the uk as an actual mk act so if you're interested in seeing it live come hang out with us it'd be really great we do have guests to announce i don't know why we haven't done that yet but nevertheless uh if you're listening on the audio portion of the podcast pod-live.com for more information all right all right there we go so i saw there was i, I put up let's see i put up i believe this oh, where the hell is it oops excuse me I put up this, right? And let's put it in this format, like that. That's the wrong one. Excuse me. Hold on. Let's do the right one. Let's do the correct one. Let's do... Excuse me. I got to get this situated. So anyway, I pulled this up. These are the questions. But when I pulled them up, there was one here that I didn't see from when I didn't have the incognito window on. So let me read that one first because I actually thought that was really interesting. And we'll start the show there. I actually think it's a great question. Uh, it comes to us from somebody named AP. Here's the question. It had 25 upvotes. It used to be at the top, and then it got moved. I don't know what happened, but um, it just happened as soon as I was setting this thing up for today. Anyway, I really like the question. I think we should start here. Luke, considering Francis's amazing life story, physical gifts, and talent, would you say this is the UFC's most spiteful and obvious fumble of a superstar? He writes. Not just recently but with past comments made by Dana about Francis being mentally fragile and his ego. It's up there, but it's pretty, um, it's very debatable. It's very debatable. Here's why it's debatable. The three biggest, I mean, the UFC and in particular Dana White have had a any number of face-offs with people. Um you know, you would say he's had, I mean, the ugliness between he and Tito Ortiz was really bad. 
but yet you wouldn't say long term they didn't find other ways to work together through several chapters of Tito's career. He's in the Hall of Fame, right? Like they, you know, they more or less kind of made it work, um, something like that. So I think the three biggest would be Randy Couture, um, Francis, and then I would go back to Frank Shamrock. Frank Shamrock is one. Now, everyone is very, very different, right? So here's what happened with Randy. And maybe you could also argue BJ Penn for a time. BJ Penn was, in fact, the last person to leave as champion. He beats Matt Hughes up a weight class and then just, you know, leaves the division for Japan. But they mended fences and he came back and then he won the title at 155. Like he had this whole second act in the UFC that was quite grand. But the ones that had like the longest staying power of ugliness would be uh, the Couture one where he claimed to either retire to get out of a contract, then he there was like threatened, I think, litigation for a while. But he wanted to go fight Fedor Emelianenko and HDNet, uh, which was the Mark Cuban-owned channel, which became Access TV. Uh, and he couldn't really do it. There was a lawsuit that, and then the lawsuit got moved from <coughs> where it was filed to a place that was more hospitable to Zufa, who was the, the, the aggrieved party, and they basically won, and he couldn't get out of it. It, it ended up being you know, several weeks of a really ugly, ugly media cycle. Um, and yes, he did come back to the UFC after that. It wasn't like that was the last thing he ever did. In fact, I saw his last fight in Toronto when he got knocked out by Leota Machida. Things that seemed to be in a better place, but then they had a bit of a falling out after that. Randy has been an advocate for the MMAFA and trying to get the Ali Act passed. And, you know, he's banned, I think, from UFC events outright, you know. So he has been honored in a way, but there's been really long-term bad blood. That would be one. Um, Francis's situation to the point that you raised, number one heavyweight on the planet, a knockout machine, terrifying, fresh off of the arguably the most difficult title defense that that division has, right? It's certainly something that's worth taking seriously, an incredible record. The thing about being mentally weak, it wasn't like uh, it wasn't like he was mentally weak, but he was competitively overwhelmed against Stipe the first time they fought. I didn't mind. It's a tough business. I don't mind tough criticism. You know, maybe he worded it in a clumsy and perhaps rude way, but there is something to the idea that you could see on Francis's face that he was overmatched. He was in over his head, and he was in deep trouble. He survived it, but it kind of ruined him into the Lewis fight, and it wasn't until he got right. This, this isn't to validate all of the criticisms Dana's ever had of Francis, but if you want to argue that something happened to him in that Stipe interview, that or excuse me, Stipe fight, excuse me, that was both lasting and at least for a moment there, revealing of his character at that time. I think you as a as not a character overall character as a elite prize fighter like what kind of moxie he has when the going got tough he he got overwhelmed he got overwhelmed that's not like to say he doesn't have a courageous heart in the most obvious way that he does from his how he actually made it to the place where he is today but competitively he was overwhelmed um and also the other part about Francis is that the story's not it's not even close to over yet. We don't really know what's going to happen with Francis. Maybe he goes and does get a huge boxing fight and get a, gets a huge boxing payday. Can you imagine if he won? I mean, I would never bet on that, but like, you know, stranger things have happened. Can you imagine if he knocked out like a Deontay Wilder or a Tyson Fury or something? I mean, he would set the world on fire with that. Now, that seems the most extreme positive outcome. But, you know, these are the, the range of positive outcomes exist. There's a range of negative outcomes, and we just don't really know where on that spectrum he's going to end up excuse me let me lock this thing because tukey's going to come home soon hang on she just come barging right in 
as you guys well know. Um, so it's really hard to say exactly who's going to win out from this. You can still go back to what Brian said yesterday on MK, which was even if he doesn't end up being a, a giant material success, the fact that he was able to live his values in this way and try to make the sport better and blah, blah, blah. Like just that act alone means he kind of won something here. I agree to an extent. I agree that the virtue of it is noteworthy, but you know, uh, a successful movement isn't one that, I mean, this sort of sounds obvious, but just hear me out on this. A successful movement in creating fighter change isn't one that continuously falls flat on its face. Like if you actually want to say you're meaningfully moving the interests of fighters forward, you actually have to do it. Right. So we, we keep making this out to be like, this is only going to you know benefit him financially. I guess, you know what, it's worth saying out loud. There's a range of outcomes here where he actually does benefit financially and it doesn't really result in any kind of material change for the fighters um because the two are just the the way in which the the process worked after being released they were just too distinct one couldn't really affect the other but i'm just sort of pointing out that if the object is to actually fix things for fighters um this will only go there's there's a range of outcomes where this goes quite negatively so that because that story is not written and again how many when bj left for k1 was it 2004 he left for k1 or whatever it was in japan at the time I never thought he would be back. I, you know, I thought, well, I mean, it was a very different MMA landscape at the time, but you're just like, well, I guess he's done with that, you know? Um, and by the way, Randy had had previous issues with management before and leaving the organization when, you know, Pedro Hizzo was kind of the star for them. And, and that, by the way, if you've never seen Couture versus Hizzo, it's a great heavyweight fight. So there's all that beef going on. Um, Francis may end up back in UFC. He may end up back in UFC, in which case, you know, we will have to examine what that means at the time. The Frank Shamrock one's a little more interesting to me because while Francis has got this incredible life story, dude, Frank Shamrock had a, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't in, 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 uh, sand. He wasn't shoveling sand in mines for precious minerals, you know, uh, and then trying to get across, um, vast deserts and rough terrain and you know he didn't live one of the more miraculous stories you'll ever hear no but he had a hard scrabble upbringing obviously as everyone knows and being adopted and his brother ken and the whole story like he had some athletic gifts along the way but he had a really rough upbringing as well and a kid on the streets and getting into trouble and dude frank and the time in which he existed in his run i think he was he was basically the fighter of the decade in the 90s right he was that guy and he was a guy who moved the sport forward in terms of like what he meant as a fighter and what he meant as an attraction. I mean, he was a big deal and he has been memory hold. I don't think modern MMA fans have any understanding of the significance of Frank Shamrock, none whatsoever to say nothing of his incredible performances in like, he doesn't have the most amount of UFC wins in the way you might examine, but like the wins that he does have, I think he's got five title fight wins. Like every one of them is sort of significant in some very important way, either in terms of the advancement of fighting or the advancement of some kind of cause or to push the UFC forward at the time in some kind of way, like everything represented, or it was a, it was a revenge match or he was approving supremacy in a weight class, like all of these things, every time he won in a major bout like that, it, it, it was just this massive significance to it. And when he was, when he was on top, dude, he was, you know, untouchable. He was untouchable at the time. And Francis isn't that, and neither was Randy. For as good as either of them were, both UFC champions, Randy a champion in two different weight classes, 
in terms of like being the consensus guy at that time, neither were that. Uh, and it's true that the UFC definitely tried to put him in the Hall of Fame. And you could make a very strong case that Frank fucked that up. You know, this is not to say that like Frank plays no role in how the how great the division is between he and that organization. Um, and I know that they made a good faith effort to put him in the Hall of Fame, and he kind of blew that up. Like they, they, this one goes a lot of ways, but I will say, tragically, for speaking about that biggest fumble. Can you call it the biggest fumble if the other guy, in this case, Frank Shamrock, also plays a role? It's all a matter of debate. But I would say, like, perhaps the biggest tragedy that I can think of, the biggest, um, the most unfortunate reality about the pillars of the sport. Everyone knows the story of Hoist Gracie. Many know the story of Ken Shamrock. And Hoist is obviously, you know, perhaps the most important, monumentally important dude. Frank is not far behind. Frank is a key ingredient in understanding how the sport got from there to there. He was he was that guy, and uh, you just don't see any evidence of it. There's just no, there's no, and again, he, Frank, I want to be clear with this. It sounds like you're bashing UFC. Frank, Frank plays a role in that. I mean, a big one, probably. Uh, but that is really regrettable to me. Really regrettable. But the, the the three biggest the three biggest stories that I can think of in terms of guys getting sideways with the UFC and like it carrying significance and what it means and how pitched the battles were and how far they went into Couture's case litigation or in Francis's case this sort of larger media news cycle and raising questions about fighter treatment and compensation and uh, the various provisions he was asking for and healthcare and a future and standing up for themselves in this sort of very monopolized industry every guy was dealing with a different problem along the way and Dana got sideways with Frank and I think you know Frank uh didn't like signing away all of his rights that was a big part of it and it, it's a, it's a long complicated battle each one is kind of unique to itself um but I, as it stands to me today Francis's story is on is on is not finished there's a whole lot left Frank's is over and most people have forgotten it all right uh let's see it's got one up. I'll read it. All right. Money and time, no object. Is there another sport subject or topic you would want to transition to or dedicate more time to your role as an analyst or presenter? This person has very nice things to say and then says, um, like, something with plenty of technical depth but enough inherent fun to be something you could play around with. Massive fan. Well, I, I have terrible news for you. Um, no, not really. No, no, Maybe that's great news, actually. I don't, I don't really know. No, not really. I have um, whatever limitations and errors I have the vast majority of my time and energy in my adult life has been spent putting into this um, to I have other things that interest me, but I have very little time for them. It's this like reading for pleasure or education or to stay up to date with current events, some versions of entertainment, family time. And that's, that's, and then, you know, that's basically my life that I, I don't do. I have, I have devoted my life to this. Um, and that means the sacrifice of things that would make me more well-rounded. Um, or there's things that I like that I just don't want to share in that. I have found this, man. Like, every time, <laughs> you know, never meet your heroes, right? Every time I've gotten closer to something, I have found that it makes my relationship with it more complicated. And sometimes in ways that I don't like. There's a lot of things I'm just happy to keep at a distance. And that's ignorance is bliss, but I'm okay with that. There's just a few things I don't mind keeping a more rosy picture of 
um, not being too involved with it, just, you know, sort of a casual interest and happy to have it just be that. No less, no more. I think I'm a little bit happier that way. Mm. All right, let's get back to this. Let's see. Uh, hello, Luke. Uh, did Islam versus Charles finally kill the myth of the resume? By that, I mean the idea or way of thinking that says, quote, look who fighter X has beaten. It's a murderer's row. Fighter Y hasn't faced anywhere near the same level of competition. And therefore, I think fighter X will wins this fight. We heard this over and over ad nauseum during the buildup to UFC 280. Something I told people over and over before 280 was the skill sets decide fights, not resumes. But did it kill the myth of the resume? I'm not sure what myth that is. If the idea is that your resume and its strength dictates how future matchups will go, well, yes, that is obviously quite silly. Dude, Charles's resume is not a myth. <laughs> like, if you were Charles Oliveira and someone was saying that about your resume, you might have some second thoughts about, like, that person. I know you're not intending it that way, but I want to be clear about something. That resume is a mark of greatness. It cannot dictate to you the future. It cannot do that. It is limited in the sense of not merely prognostication, but in, in what the resume means for future endeavors. It can be helpful. In many ways, it can often be right. But it is a crude method by which to try to navigate future matchup, um, as I mentioned, prognostication. But it is a mark of past greatness. It is a mark of genuine achievement. And the whole idea is that if you can have a wide array of genuine achievement, and let's pull up um, Charles's resume just for the sake of, of argument here. Um, so everyone can take a look. Actually, you know what? I'm going to do this on Wikipedia because there's fewer ads on the screen. Uh, shouts to Tapology. I like them better, but um, the ads get on my nerves when I do it in incognito. All right, let's do this here. So let's pull this up. Now, we're not going to look at all of his losses, but let's talk about the good part, right? Let's talk about that win streak, this one. This win streak right here. So he beat Clay Guida. He guillotined him. Christos Giagos rear-naked choked him. Jim Miller rear-naked choked. Jim Miller, black belt and a Division One wrestler. David Tamer, Anaconda. He TKO'd Nick Lentz. He KO'd Jared Gordon. He submitted Kevin Lee. He did a lot more than that to Kevin Lee. That fight was amazing for, for, for um, in terms of what it showed about Charles. Then he demolished Tony. Then he finished off Michael Chandler. Then he beat Dustin Poirier. And then he beat Justin Gaethje. And he finished all of them. He finished all of them. Dude, the, the level, like, yes, does that tell us that he can beat whoever they put in front of him? No, it doesn't tell you that. But, like, what do, it does tell you something. It tells you that this is an incredibly talented person who's who has achieved enormous, shocking, historic levels of success. Um, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think you're undercutting that idea. I don't know exactly how you intended it. But I, I, there's a strong tendency in MMA to look at someone's resume after the fact, especially the more time gets between when those fights happen and when you're looking at it, the longer that gap gets. And people begin to get very dismissive of resumes. People get dismissive of Fedor's resume. I'm telling you, in 10 years, they're going to be dismissive of Anderson Silva's resume. Some will. You, you will see it. it I've, I've, they're dismissive. With, well, Penn really did it, his own damage to his own resume. But in that stretch anyway, like people will dismiss it. They'll, they'll dismiss St. Pierre. They'll dismiss 
it doesn't matter how good you are. That people will dismiss it over time, especially um, the more time has passed. People even try to do it with Jones for a little bit, you know, even though he's basically basically undefeated. Um, so I just want to resist the urge. We don't want to overstate anything significant, but I don't want to then go too far the other direction and then sort of say, you know, we can't really infer anything from the resume. He got he, he was the winner on these individual nights, but what broader lessons can we take? Dude, you can learn a lot about someone from just looking at their MMA resume, especially one like that. Not the full picture, not the full breadth and depth, but it is extremely valuable. It is very significant in terms of its its meaning. It's just... You know, you want to look at the future, you got to find Miss Cleo, right? That's a that's an old man reference. All right, let's see this one. Luke, how do you think Francis would do against the one FC who is Arjun Buller at the time? I think Francis would win. Bellator, it's Ryan Bader. I am quite certain Francis would win that. PFL heavyweight champion. Who's the PFL heavyweight champion? Is it is it uh, Bruno Capalazzo? I don't even know who the PFL heavyweight champion I can't even remember anymore. Hold on. Let me look that up. Let's see. Who is the existing weight class champion for heavyweight? I have forgotten. Is it, uh, let's see. Here we go. So, oh, wait, wait, wait. Sorry. 2022. Here we go. It is, uh, is it Ante D'Elia, right? Ante D'Elia. Yeah, he's going to beat Ante D'Elia. Yeah. Yes, that's a thing that's going to happen. Um, and what else was the question? Who among them has better chances to make this fight really competitive? Maybe Arjun Buller with the wrestling? It wouldn't be our, um, I would tell you that it's going to be the guy who Arjun Buller has to fight next. Anatoly Malakin? Yeah, that motherfucker's good. <laughs> that dude's real good. I still would probably favor Francis over him, but of anyone in those heavyweight you mentioned, like Bader is fast and can wrestle, but he crumbled against Anthony Johnson in the worst way possible like francis is that you know even worse even more so no he wouldn't win that one i i don't think um and then the one as i mentioned it will be malakin we'll talk about him in a second and then ante delia you know that's a nice win but um or was it ante delia or was it uh what's his face excuse me i got the wrong one hold on excuse me no that was right and it was, yeah, Robert Wilkinson was at light heavyweight. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, no, Francis would beat all of them. Uh, this is the problem. He doesn't really have anyone to fight. But Anatoly Malikin out of one championship, this was the guy who just beat the bejesus out of Rainier de Ritter, who was the two-weight world champion for them. They're, they're, um, he was their middle and light heavyweight champ. And he tried to defend the light heavyweight crowd against Malikin who is the interim heavyweight champion over in one in championship. Malakin and Buller are going to fight for the undisputed heavyweight title. Malakin is a beast. Malakin is a beast. He is fast. He is heavy-handed. He's aggressive. He can wrestle. He has big power. He's athletic, quick. Um, he makes good decisions. Dude, he is a handful. Of all the names that I mentioned, that guy to me would be by far by far the most competitive. If you have not, believe me when I tell you, if you have not heard of Anatoly Malikin, you're gonna. You're gonna. I suspect he will beat Arjun Buller, and um, he's gonna beat a lot of people's favorite fighters. And I suspect UFC is gonna make a run for him. Not a doubt in my mind. 
You hear Dookie? All right. Um, someone asks, let's see. Hey, Luke, with Nganu now gone, do you think this gives Sergei Pavlovich the chance to take over his role as the scariest man in the division? Yeah. Yeah, he might be. Let's pull up that roster here, at least for the the, the rankings. All right, for heavyweight, let's see. So you've got Gon. Would he be the scariest? No. Stipe, no. Pavlovich, maybe. Blades, he's up there. Tuivas is scariest? No, he's too delightful. <laughs> Tom Aspinall, no. I mean, he's terrifying, but the scariest? No. Uh, Derek Lewis, for a time, had that one, but maybe not anymore. Volkov, he, you know, no, but he's in the convo a little because he's so tall and menacing. Rosenstrike, no. Marcin Tyboran, no. Dawkins, no. Spivak, no. Romanov. Romanov's interesting. Uh, Ivanov, no. And then Abdurakimov, no. Yeah, he, yes. The answer is yes. Yes. It's, it's Pavlovich. He's, there's a guy who, again, I've said it before. I watched his fight. I, I remember watching his fight against Overeem, and Overeem just fucking clobbered him. And I was like, well, he must be not that good. I didn't know much more else about him. And then he's just been stopping everyone immediately since. He's, he's terrifying. Um, let's see. Good question. Luke Tatiana Suarez makes her long awaited return against Montana de la Rosa on February 25th. If she picks up where she left off, where would you see her in that women's strawweight division? Since she has since, uh, uh, since she said that she will drop back to 115 later this year, excuse me. Um, all right. So let's see about the rankings. Where is 125 now? Because she may end up sticking around. You don't really know. Yeah, you got Cortez, Barber, O'Neill, Blanchfield at 10, Andrea Lee. So all of a sudden, there's some interesting names at 125. At 115, I, I listen, I'll, I'll just put it this way. I don't even need to look at it. If she's healthy, that's the biggest if because that has been such an issue for her. If she is healthy... I think she can beat anyone in the world in her weight class. Period. End of story. That's how good I think she is at her best when she's healthy. Yeah. I think she will absolutely smash that division. Um, but it's so hard to tell because the injury has not been something that's just sidelined her. Even in her fight against Nina uh, Ansaroff at the time, Nina Nunez, you know, she just couldn't really be herself. She couldn't really, her neck was giving her problems. Her neck has been a, a major source of issues because obviously she had cancer in her neck prior to that. Like it's a whole thing. But if she's healthy, if let, let me say it very clearly, if Tatiana Suarez is truly healthy and can truly physically commit, because she has a very labor intensive, hands on, physical, very wrestling based style, not, not in every part of it, but a, it is largely defined by her wrestling background, her wrestling sensibilities, takedowns, control, wrist control, control positions, be on top, be heavy on top, heavy ground and pound, advanced position, wilt this person. You need, a, you need to make sure that your body feels good to do that. If you have neck, back, low back, rib issues, it's going to make it very shoulder. It's going to make it very difficult. So assuming that is not a thing that hinders her, she will be a, she will be a champion. I think she's that good. I think her I think her wrestling game is even with as much as that division has caught up. 
Um, and and Zhang Wiley has really made significant strides. I don't think anyone can stand up to her. But, you know, um, and I know she's, well, actually, you know what? Let me put a slight asterisk, asterisk on that, which is how much has the time off hindered her development? Now, even what she showed when she left, again, not injured, was to me enough to think that she could beat anyone in that division on the right night. Has she been able to meaningfully progress despite being sidelined for long portions of her career with injuries? Now, of course, she's been training in very different ways during that time, but I think very highly of her game. Her game is excellent. It is, it's ahead of its time for the state of the women's division, and she just needs to get right, um, and she can do damage. Damage. Uh, people say there's no such thing as a dumb question, but there are. Although, good news, this is not one of them. Luke, I have a question regarding the Ali Act. It might be dumb. I'm friends with a guy who's in the UFC. He's 3-3 three and three and made over 100K from three fights last year. Not many guys fought three times. Would the Ali Act take money away from someone in his position? He's not a big name. But he's a good fighter. He's able to earn a living. So a prelim guy, something like that? Um, yeah, because if you're making... That means you're making... I don't know how many he won and lost in the last year. I'm assuming he won at least one. Um, I don't know. I'd be curious to figure out who this is. But um, I understand the Ali Act is about giving fighters certain rights, but I hate to see someone in my friend's position unable to provide for himself and his family. I'm not against the Ali Act. I just wish to better understand it, or understand it better, excuse me. Yeah, I don't think it would be majorly impactful for someone like that. It could be. It's really hard to say. Most of what you would see as um, potentially very significant is for someone who is either in a ranked position or close to a ranked position. I think that's where it would begin to get interesting. And to the extent that the contracts got much shorter, um, it would create more movement between promotions. It would create more parity. They would not be equal, but it would create more parity between promotions, relatively speaking. The question is, would it depress wages for people who are not in those rankings positions? Um, I I don't think so. I think because the MMA business model operates very differently, I don't think that it would have the depressive effect on that person's wage. It might mean that they have less um, long-term job security with per contract. Which is to say that like they might not see a massive change one way or the other in the pay, but um, would they be able to stay on the roster essentially doing what they're doing, going 500 in the UFC? The UFC might make quicker cuts about saving on costs, slightly smaller cards, things like that. There could be ways in which it just makes rotation through promotions, I think, um, a little bit quicker. But I don't know that if it, I, I've not seen anything that would tell you it would outright depress wages. Most of the effects, most of the effects would be largely related to uh, the more premier end of the talent pool. Um, but let's be clear about something too, right? It doesn't really matter what policy ideas you support. In any kind of even very successful policy, there are winners and losers. Right? You should be very honest about that. Like, oh, I'm big on free trade. Fine, great. Free trade has winners and losers. Um, I'm big on, I don't know, 
you know, pick whatever issue that you're big on. I think that the city should install more bike lanes. Great. There's going to be winners and losers from that. Whether or not there is a more collective good, whether or not this is a service that the government in this particular case should provide, whether or not the government has a compelling interest in regulating mixed martial arts, it's trying to solve for something. And what it's essentially trying to solve for the Ali Act, should it ever get passed, is this disparity in the is the, is essentially is tr- they're trying to solve for some of the more rampant abuses in the fight game where people don't have access to financial um, transparency guarantees, where they uh, are at the whim of the promoter who can control the title, you know, all of the various things that the Ali Act would try to solve for. That's what it's trying to do. Does that mean that everyone who is a fighter is going to benefit from all of those changes? No, not necessarily. I can imagine cases where there wouldn't be one. It doesn't sound to me like this one would be a prime case for it. Um, but I do think it would model a little bit of what you see in boxing where some of the back end of the talent gets kind of cut off and much of more of the energy is spent on the ranked side. And on the ranked side, that's where the vast majority of the money is going to be. I mean, that's sort of already the case. It might make it a little bit worse in that sense, which is not going to benefit everybody. But I don't know that this one would fall into that category. But would there be some? Yes, there would be some. That's not a reason not to do it. The question is, like, what is better for the industry? What is the government's uh, uh, interest in, in regulating this? What is their responsibility? Those are the broader questions. What, what problems are they trying to solve for? How pronounced are them? How pronounced should the legislation be in trying to protect it? Right? All, th- that's the the, the um, that's why you either do it or don't do it. Not because everyone will benefit every time. Although, obviously, someone's going to say, well, what if it makes more people's lives worse? Yes, if it did that, then that would not be something you would necessarily want to do. However, again, I don't think it would really, it doesn't really apply for the vast, it's just hard to know how much the industry would reorient itself under a rule where like a promoter couldn't have you for more than two or three years or something. And there's an independent rankings panel and there's no longer a UFC or Bellator title. There's just a WBC title or, you know, whatever it is how much that reorients how existing MMA uh, promotions operate, how much, how big are their rosters, how many shows they do, what their, pay, what their uh, business models, how they respond to it. Do they go more into pay-per-view or less? Um, it's just, it would create fairly significant change in that sense. But I don't think that the person who is like this, if you're 500 in the UFC and you're only costing them hundred K, you're not, you're not invaluable to them, but you're not very expensive either. Um, okay. Someone's asking about the Paul Hughes cage warriors title. I've been over it a million times. He looked phenomenal, but we can move on to something else. <laughs> Let's do this one. How do you feel about Francis fighting Shannon Briggs in his first boxing match? Yeah, no thanks. No thanks. I mean, I want to support what Francis does, but if he's fighting Shannon Briggs, I'm not... That what the what the what is that? You know, what is that? So this is an interesting one. Look, do you believe some of these issues the UFC has been dealing with lately could potentially positively impact the product? Okay. Could the negative PR force, excuse me, could the negative PR force the matchmakers to be more aggressive and make more fun fights for the fans. No. No, they're pretty aggressive. <laughs> they're extremely aggressive. 
they're the most aggressive matchmakers maybe in all of combat sports. I mean, I'm just sort of thinking about the other matchmakers in the other sports. They're not like that. And the other, excuse me, other MMA promotions, they're not like that. Now, I'm not sure how it works at Golden Boy or Top Rank or PBC. Um, Al Heyman is not a matchmaker, but certainly a matchmaking force. But UFC's matchmakers, and, I, and I'm saying they're bad guys, but you know, Joe Silva was one of the most tyrannical people in the sport during his reign. It's not exactly the same. And you heard, um, for example, Francis had great things to say about Mick Maynard. Fair enough. Like, I'm sure they're pros, but they're on the ball. Like, they're moving. They're working constantly. They're, you know, in many cases, renegotiating with managers and all this kind of stuff. Like, they're they're busy. They're busy. And they're, you know, they're stubborn uh, from what I've, my, my you know, talking to other folks about it. Like, they, you know, they, dude, they, listen, they're the matchmakers for the Ultimate Fighting Championship, dude. They're not fucking around. They're not fucking around at all. But I don't, I don't really get the connection between like what's happening with James Krause or Dana's issues or whatever in like making more fun fights for the fans. I think they're going to try and do the best job that they can. They don't want to look bush league. They don't want to look bad. They don't want to look um, like a promotion that doesn't have its things together, even, no matter what the reality is or isn't. But I don't know what other mechanism would exist that would be in place that would allow them to ramp up the fights that they are making that would make it better for the fans. They would have to change their business model. They would have to change their business model. That's what would have to change. They'd have to do fewer shows. They'd have to change the relationship to pay-per-view. They'd have to do, you know, whatever, less weight classes or whatever, put more fights on one kind of card or they would have to change your business model. That's the only way. Cut out the bottom part of the roster that goes three and three or whatever. The matchmakers, dude, it might sound cool to be a matchmaker for the UFC. That job is hell on their lives. I mean, they're on all the time. You know, it's their the travel and the, the stress. And I mean, that's why Joe Silva wanted out. And when he was out, he was done. Done, 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 done. Didn't want it anymore. That is sounds cool, and it is cool in a sense. That is not an enviable job in terms of what you actually have to do. So, no, dude, they're maxed. Uh, they're pretty close to maxed out. They're not. There's not much more that's available to them. I think if they want better PR, fix the problem <laughs> or do something meaningful to address it. For example, I didn't like the way that they went with this personally, but lots of people did. I'm outvoted on this one. When they had the whole bad, dude, they were getting tons of bad press during the really blow up parts of the TRT era when it was really leaking into the mainstream and they were really getting written up in terrible ways and they looked bad and their guys looked, you know, all juiced to the gills and everything. It was terrible. They went and signed with USADA. They got a lot of good publicity from that. And you could say they, to, depending on your perspective, that they meaningfully cleaned up their anti-doping program or at least put their best foot forward in it, right? You can say that. And that that's what they have to do. Now, in fact, related to the James Krause thing, they signed up with, the, U the UFC did, has partnered with US Integrity, which is basically this firm that uses advanced software among a variety of other tools. But really what they do is they monitor betting to make sure that is, in short, that the betting that's happening is 
above board and not uh, in any way strange or suspicious or hopefully illegal. Hopefully not illegal, but I'm saying that they could find it in that way. Um, and so they have now been reinstated in Ontario. So people in Ontario, roughly 15 million, can now bet on UFC events again. That's how you get good PR, right? You have to button up the operation, at least in theory. Now, again, I have my issues with USADA, but I recognize that you know, decades and decades of the war on drugs has warped people's perspective about what drugs do or don't do in society. And so, you know, they have a very fond idea of the idea that you can police this stuff out of sports. Um, you know, spoiler alert, you cannot. But uh, that was a meaningful, to the public, that was a meaningful step in the right direction. It was a step towards the mainstream, right? Cleaning everything up. This was obviously pre-sale in 2016. So that's, you want good publicity, that's how you get good publicity. Do responsible things, in theory anyway, that an organization would do to tackle emerging problems. Um, let's see. Oh, I love this question. Great. Luke, with Richard Schaefer, this is surprising. Well, maybe not. With Richard Schaefer opining on the MMA Hour that MMA is in a healthier sport, is a healthier sport than boxing because of MMA's monopolistic pay structure. How do you think that reflects on John Jones's new eight fight deal? Jones went to Schaefer to ostensibly get the guidance of someone who wasn't entangled in the UFC managerial web, but nevertheless seems to have, it's a great question, but seems to have landed on someone sympathetic to the system that largely kept John out of the sport for three years. Yeah. I mean, dude, when he, when he announced he was working with Richard Schaefer, Dana White was like, that sounds great. I mean, what does that tell you? Richard Schaefer, I have nothing bad to say about. I've interviewed Richard Schaefer a few times. I find him to be a very smart, hardworking, pretty sensible guy for the most part. We differ very much on this issue, but I, I like Richard Schaefer. From, and again, I don't know him from the John Jones side of things. I knew him from boxing way back when, when he was, uh, I believe, working with Golden Boy. But um, yeah, I mean, it's very easy to say that the structure is better that when you're not collecting your paycheck on the fighting end of it. Right. That's not how he makes his wage in the game, is it? Right. So, you know, getting out there and saying, well, it actually works better, works better for who, Richard? And he probably would say the fighters, but he's wrong, or at least sort of not the point. Let me explain. Okay. Boxing is full of terrible people. I mean, just scum of the earth. Thieves, crooks, domestic abusers, morons, morons willing to do crimes, insider fucking dealing, self-dealing. I mean, it's it's a gross industry. But there is something, and I keep trying to make this point to Brian, it's slowly dawning on him. When you come from boxing and you're just around these repugnant characters, it really warps your perspective about what this is. And then you see guys get hurt or killed or maimed, you know, and it begins to really sour you on what boxing is and what it does to people. But we, even with all of that, one of the things that people really bemoan about boxing is its dysfunction. It's dysfunction, right? Look at how disjointed it is. Um, PBC doesn't want to work with top rank, although we are now seeing that Stephen Fulton Jr. is going to fight um, Noya Inoue in Japan, which is amazing, by the way. But, you know, okay, so small stuff like that happens. You know, tank uh, uh, 
Davis versus Ryan Garcia is heralded as some miracle because no one ever wants to cross the promotional aisle. The UFC does solve a lot of those problems. They have 80% of the world's best fighters, and these fighters don't have a lot of contractual help to see that their sides or their um, interests are more forcefully preserved, right? Because it's the UFC basically signing these contracts and um, writing them and, and forcing these stipulations. And that creates a certain amount of order. It creates a certain amount of cleanliness, right? It is, it, it, the industry is tidier. It all runs in sort of one direction. People in boxing kind of look at that and they say, God, look how orderly it looks, right? Look how functional it is. Everything, the trains leave the station on time. Guys take fights when they're not supposed to. Like, it just works better for the fan. I would have two very important responses to this. Number one, it's true that it's more orderly. But the reason why it's more orderly is because it is controlled by a dominant player whose interests in many cases don't overlap with the, they're not employees, but with the employed labor that is then providing the service. Boxing is disjointed, but in its disjointedness, it is actually a, a slightly, actually, I would say a much more ethical business model. That disjointedness allows other players to have a say and that creates cacophony, that creates difficulty, that creates some um, firewalls, it creates conflict. It doesn't create an orderly product relative to this monopsony you see in the MMA side of things. No, you don't get that. That's true. It's disjointed. But that disjointedness works to make sure that one single player can't dominate in that kind of a way that people actually have different entities, different organizations can compete. Um, no one can have control or say over it. It is still, you know, open in that way, relatively speaking. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is I think that pe people are a little bit confused about monopoly or monopsony. Now, again, this is something of an academic argument. Is the UFC monopsony? Is it not? It never crosses some threshold where you can just check it off the box like it's a fact of existence. Is this a jellyfish or not a jellyfish? The, the question is never so simple. Um, but certainly you can you can make a very strong, incredible case that the Ultimate Fighting Championship in the year of our Lord 2023 is a monopsony, right? It really it, it, It's not difficult to make that argument just given the way in which the industry works. The problem with that is the UFC does a really good job. They kind of hold their own feet to the fire for the most part. And certainly up in its, in its since you was, since the UFC was purchased by the Fertitas and, and Dana White was in control, they have been very big on being better than the other competitor. And they've done a lot to do that. Some by means that you would not applaud, but even just regular means like just trying to be sharper and, and ahead of the game and thinking ahead and, trying to have an innovative product. They've really leaned into that, and they've done a very good job of that. But the problem with Monopoly, like why is Monopoly bad for industry more generally? It's because not only do you get this control where the other players can't really do what they want, and um, you could have, uh, you know, the, 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 you don't need the parity that you would otherwise get for a competitive marketplace. It actually can affect the consumer from getting a better product, right? That's That's the issue, is that, 
when you have an industry that's consolidated around a single buyer or a single seller, whatever the case may be, monopsony or monopoly, um, that over time, the product can grow sclerotic and not in tune with the fans' needs, but because the industry is so controlled, they can't, no one can really change that dynamic. No one can really do anything about it. Another entity has to come in and break it all up. Now, that's in the case of a much more maybe exaggerated true monopoly um, in the sense that we've known it historically throughout the 20th century, but that's that's the problem. The UFC has resisted that to this point, but here's what I would point to. You see growing discontent over the use of the apex. You see growing discontent over the watered-down nature of the cars. Now, that tends to flow up and down with the time, and this can sometimes be you know, very subjective or you know, a very fleeting criticism, but they don't have much of an incentive to change because the consumers just don't have a lot of great choice relative to the very dynamic product that the UFC puts out with 80% of the world's very best fighters compared to what everyone else gets. One tries what they try in a different way, but you get the idea, like in the MMA side of things, it's just very difficult to compete about that. And over time, what has been shown with monopolies is they do grow more sclerotic over time. They do grow more resistant to um, meeting consumer demands and expectations or prices, depending on how either buying or selling, it, it can over the long term create for a worsened product, but in the industry, we'd be incapable of fixing it. You may not be feeling the fullness of that right now, but unless someone does something about it, there's a strong case that it could be made going forward. You're that's exactly what you're going to run into. Not that every show will be an apex show, but that um, whatever growing discontent you have with the way in which the product is being charged to you, how much you appreciate it. And the monopoly can do that. They, they, the monopoly just doesn't can do that. It inexorably leads to that. So, you know, when he says everything, he's like, wow, it's like, you know, <laughs> I went to, I went to this place and the trains leave on time. It's like, okay, well, great. But like, do the trains leave on time? Because, you know, this is a very repressed society and people are scared to do anything else. Or, I mean, you know, it's a sort of a tortured analogy but you get the idea like it's it's a very bizarre complaint to say everything is just what was the way you put it here um it's a healthier sport um yeah but boxing is weird right boxing can't save it can't kill it that's sort of the idea no one can take it over to save it i mean to save a product you have to do what the ufc did you have to take it over can't do that in boxing but you can't kill it either it just lives with this with this sort of very tenuous but nevertheless ex existing uh, balance of power between competing interests. I, I, I know that fans don't like that friction. I know fans don't like that difficulty. But I don't know, man. I got to tell you, if someone's been watching combat sports a long time, as fucked up as the boxing industry is, and it is gross. It is gross. And however gross you think it is, it's that times 10. I don't feel nearly as bad about it as I do um, in terms of my sympathy for the combatants. I don't feel nearly as bad for them as I do for the MMA fighters. Not even close. And for Schaefer to say that is extremely surprising. Disappointing and surprising. He's a smart guy. I like Richard Schaefer, but uh, he's wrong on this one. Also, I, he might just be doing a bit where it's like, I have to do business with the UFC. I might as well put myself in good graces because otherwise I'm going to be on the outside looking in. Hello. They control everything. You know, I, I need to be on the right side of their goodwill if I want the good things to happen to me. 
whether or not he actually believes that Monop- I mean, dude, you know, <laughs> Monopoly is good for MMA. Someone make that argument. Like, it's good for MMA. Long term, you sure about that? I'm not so sure about that. Uh, okay, let's go to this one. Luke, you've talked about the new generation of lightweights that are going to take over soon. Uh, of the following, what do you see as being the upper bound limits of each of the following? Anything from belt holder, talent challenger, or just contender? Fazeev, we're talking about his very... Okay, so let's go through these. Fazeev, he looks like the genuine article. I think he will certainly fight for a title. Don't know if he'll win one. Very hard to say that anyone's going to win a title. That's pretty rare. But um, he looks to be a very serious threat. A very serious threat. Uh, Grant Dawson definitely definitely will be a top contender hard to s- title challenger I don't I remain agnostic not as convinced Fazeev is going to fight for a title right Gamrot will probably fight for a title yeah Turner very talented way too early to say way too early to say just doesn't he looks like he's special too um, but it's pumped the brakes on him. I just don't have enough information to really give you a keen sense. Saryukin's going to fight for a title. He's going to fight for a title. Um, and it's not that they're age. I think Turner and Saryukin are roughly equivalent in age, but uh, the kind of control and wrestling that he has and the athleticism that he has already, again, we've talked about his limits, but just that alone will put him in an, a, a rare and elevated space. Kuta Teladze, um, I... <sighs> Top contender for sure. Hard to say beyond that. And then Alvarez. He might be a top 10 guy or something like that. Maybe, maybe top five if he gets lucky, but probably not. But uh, he's a good fight. I mean, these are all Fazeev, Dawson, Gamrot, um, Jalen Turner, Armin Saryukin, uh, Goran Kutatiladze, and, and Joel Alvarez. All these guys are great fighters. Uh, but only probably a couple of them-ish. Look like they have real title potential, but uh, dude, look at look at look at the guys at 155 that are on their way up. I mean, <laughs> Jesus, I would hate to be in their way. All right, good question. I like this one. All right, here we go. Do you think if during negotiations Francis had made public his intentions to try to find middle ground with the UFC on the topics he listed, so healthcare, representation, sponsorship? He would have been able to add enough public pressure on the UFC to get concessions on something, anything in those worlds. If other fighters knew he was publicly willing to walk out with something, do you think that would have been big enough to publicly sacrifice? Excuse me. Do you think that would have been a big enough public sacrifice to get other fighters involved? Uh, No, no, I don't think so. I think the fighters are largely afraid. And um, like, it's funny. I don't think the fighters are afraid of any of their opponents basically ever at this level you know i don't really believe that i mean you know on occasion they might realize that one fight's better for them than the other ones but if you're professionally fist fighting in a cage not a lot of things scare you but they are scared of the ufc uh you can say that very clearly and and many of their managers are and um with some rational understanding of that it's not i don't say that as like i don't i, I can't fathom why i mean i can get it I, I i understand but they are afraid uh and i use that word very intentionally of the ufc um, also many of them have Stockholm syndrome, uh, at this point too, but 
Um, no, I don't think that would have helped. I think, listen, man, there's a real big case to be made here. Like, how well did Francis handle the business negotiations? Listen, man, I, 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 there is some debate about this. I, I guess ultimately, if what you were looking for was really healthcare and representation and sponsorship, and you're like, oh, I would have taken a couple of them if not gotten all three, like, you can't get two of those three. Hell, you can't get any of those three. Without the UFC, he was asking the UFC to change their business model. Dude, you had to you had to know they were going to say no, meaning you knew you were gone before you even stepped in that office. You had to know. Like, oh, I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt, and I wanted to see what they would say. Dude, you knew what they were going to say. You knew what they were going to say. So if you were asking for it, you were asking for it because you believed that asking for health care and asking for representation in those board meetings, whatever, they're not board meetings, but um, you know, meetings between executives or among executives, I should say, or sponsorship in the cage, his own sponsorship, whatever that would entail in the specifics, any of those requires them to change their business model. So if you're asking for them, you're asking for them out of the principle that they're not a big ask. They're only a big ask because of the way the industry is structured. But if you do that, I think that is an ethically defensible position. But there's two problems with it. Number one, you knew going into whatever meeting that you weren't coming out of there. You had to be realistic with what you were. Yes, they could surprise you, but you should walk into that meeting knowing what you're asking for, knowing why you're asking for it, and then understanding what the consequences of that would be in the likelihood of them. Near certain, virtually certain. You had to know that. You had to know that, number one. Number two, that's not a great way necessarily to set yourself up for your financial future. Now, again, he has made some money. Perhaps that is not the most important thing to him. A lot of this comes down to what Francis values for him. But there's a big question about, like, what if you would have another person with you to negotiate who could have um, who could have found a way for um, – uh, who could have more – who could have helped guide this this process from a perspective of having been there before, of understanding how to navigate the process, understanding what to do, what not to do, what helps facilitate your interests, what works against them. Could that have led to a different outcome? Only in the sense that he doesn't ever ask for those things or doesn't ask for something that requires the UFC to change their business model. Like how, what how, if if in the end asking for those for the principle of under which you ask them is what mattered, it's I'm not going to say that it, again. It's an ethically defensible position, but it's almost a, like a stunt. Almost, it's not quite, but it's almost a bit of a stunt in the sense that like, dude, you know what you're doing. You know you know what you're doing. If you walk long enough off the plank, you will jump into the water. It's that's how that process works, right? That's how it goes. So, um, you know, taking the negotiations public, the fighters are not going to get on his side. That's not as long as they are under this umbrella of uh, this halo of both protection and, you know, not quite silence, but not willing what no, a lack of willingness to rock the boat. They were never going to get his side. They are not, they would listen. They're not going to storm the beach until it's basically already taken. Someone like the, like I've made this point before, like the fighters, I, I tried to argue this with them, like the cavalry ain't coming. You are the cavalry. They are not interested though in being the cavalry, but the cavalry's not coming. Now, what could happen is that um, 
the union I don't think can work not anytime soon, but it is possible who knows by what the MMAFA does. And then now Senator, Senator Mark Wayne Mullen out of the Republican out of um, Oklahoma, what they might be able to do in advancing the Ali act, in which case, if a law passes and it has this top-down effect, well, then, of course, they have to abide by it. Yeah, they'll take it in that case. But, like, would they have rallied around Francis? No. Mm-mm. I would have bet – I'd bet everything I own they would have never done that. No. And it's also, like, shitty to do to people you're trying to honestly negotiate with. Like, I, you know, there can be cases to take it public at times that can work in specific ways. But if it doesn't need to be public, then – for a very compelling reason and to get fighters to get your back it's not going to do that um yeah that would have been a mistake and he avoided a mistake i think he actually in that sense whether you take the demands public or not i think he handled it the right way again it just really comes down to like what francis wants for his life what matters to him what doesn't matter to him what he wants to go to bat for what he doesn't want to go to bat for how much money he wants like that's really it's very, very, very difficult to answer those questions. Only he knows the answer to them. Um, interesting. Okay, Luke, what would be more impressive win to you? Francis betting on himself and fighting Cyril Gone on one leg, which he did in one, or Jones if he comes back after a three-year layoff and moving up a division to beat Gone. Both of those would be impressive. I got to tell you, man, John Jones... I can't tell. I can't tell if I expect John Jones to come back and mop up Cyril Gone or to fall short and we should have all seen it coming all along. There's a there's a strain of belief I've seen it now. I've talked to a few different people and I've been sort of seeing what people have been saying as well that some believe that Jones was, in fact, burned out at the end of his light heavyweight run and probably then with a few other extra injuries and whatever else. And not that his off time has been – I mean, he hasn't used his off time necessarily all that well. Again, dude, folks forget he was popping the gun off in drunk in his car in downtown New Mexico during the pandemic. Remember this? Like, forget forget about the Las Vegas incident. Just that. Just that. Um, so he had both of those incidents during the pandemic, you know, who knows if he was really training or anything like that. If he can find a way to like, nevertheless, overcome that burnout, overcome whatever injuries were overcome, whatever the hell is going on in his personal life that led to all of that. And then actually buckle down with Henry Cejudo and then beat Cyril gone after not being, that would be insane. Yeah. I would probably go with that. That would probably be insane. I mean, I've said this before you see when Floyd was in his prime, when Floyd Mayweather was in his prime, you saw him do this. But there was reasons why it made sense for Floyd. Namely, Floyd always took very good care of himself. You know, I don't know if you know this, Floyd doesn't, to our knowledge, really do drugs. Doesn't look like he do drugs. Looks like he takes very good care of himself. Notoriously a teetotaler, not a drinker. Right? Just didn't love to party with, you know, women with big asses. Who doesn't? But uh, in general, um, you know, d- took good care of his body. But in between camps, wouldn't necessarily, like, in MMA... Like St. Pierre was the hot guy at the time, or Silva was the hot guy at the time, the hot fighter at the time. And they were like, well, when I'm not training for a camp, I'm still in the gym. There, there were boxers like Floyd who were not like that, who were not like that. They would just take time off and then go into a camp later on. Now, they would take enough time and whatever. And again, Floyd never got really out of shape. He would kind of just stay active and monitor his health and whatnot. But 
he wasn't like living a, almost this like monastic lifestyle that you see, saw a lot of fighters doing around that time. And why that mattered was because, dude, he every time you take time off like that, he would retire and then come back. The game catches up a little bit. You get older, they get younger, like the game catches up and they still couldn't catch Floyd. They still couldn't catch him. It was fucking unbelievable. And yes, you know, he got Canelo at the right time and Cotto late and all this stuff. Fine, fine. They were still tough fights when he got him and they could not catch him. And to say nothing of all the guys he fought before that and Augustus, Emmanuel Augustus and everything else, um, Valdemir, they could not fucking catch this guy, even though he would take off time like that. That was unheard of in MMA because MMA was evolving rapidly, super rapidly. You could not take time off in that way, but for injury or something like that. And even then you should be in the gym, like taking notes and stuff like that. I, I remember one time I saw a fighter who had a torn ACL in the gym, taking notes for a, at a famous gym. I showed up to one time taking notes. He couldn't, he couldn't train. He was taking notes about what the class was doing, like drawing diagrams and shit and taking notes. Like, dude, you could not miss time. John, when he was in his prime, because I don't think this is his prime, he broke all those rules. He did exactly what Floyd would do. He would take a camp, and he might spend some time training, but it would be. I was told there were many camps where that was very inconsistent, like before the camp got started. I'm told that the Matt Yushchenko camp was a fucking wreck, and he destroyed Matt Yushchenko. Destroyed. He broke all those fucking rules. All of them. And you were like, how the hell does he keep doing this? But he did. He did. To do that from age 32 to 35, right, where you're really beginning to age as an athlete now, and with all of the stuff that's going on in his personal life, with a guy like Gon who's got his strengths, it's got his weaknesses, but is a very dynamic athlete, a very good striker, all that stuff, to go in there and then beat that guy after not really kind of basically fucking around for three years, that would be insane. That would be insane. And this was 25-year-old John Jones. I bet he could do it. You know what I mean? Like, you just didn't bet against John back then. When John was 25, 20, I mean, whatever, he had his issues outside the cage. But when John was on, you never had to. I was just like, I, I, I was watching the Gustafson fight. I was like, uh, nervous for him. But I, I don't know. Like, I was never in doubt about where the outcome was going to be. It just never was a doubt. This one, I have some doubts. I just don't know. I don't know what state he's been in. I'm... I, and then it's like, was he really so good that he was just kind of bored with those guys? He got arrested twice in his time off that we know of. All that turmoil in his life, drinking, and God knows what else he's been doing. And then he trains a little bit with Henry Cejudo. It's not like he's been training with, with Henry for like years at this point, like, you know, since 2017 or something. Train with Henry Cejudo a little bit. You can come out there and you can beat Cyril Gunn up a weight class. Get the fuck out of here. That is crazy. That's crazy. That's crazy. So, yeah, that might be the most impressive. That would be, you know, what Gon did is nuts too, but you're not supposed to be able to take time off like that as much as John has, as much as Floyd did, and still win. You know, you're not supposed to be able to do that, but they do. Those guys do anyway. Uh, all right, let's see what you got for the paid stuff. If, uh, if there's anything good, I'll get to it. If not, you know, we'll call it a day. Again, you're never under any obligation to contribute in this manner, but if you do, We'll make use of the technology. Yes? Okay. Luke, as a Real Madrid fan, who do you think was the most vital to the recent Real uh, Madrid Champions League winning sides besides Ronaldo? Uh, so many options. Cruz, Ramos, Modric. Um, oh, winning sides. So not just the last Champions League performance. 
Yeah, I was, the last one would be uh, Courtois would be the Courtois would be the biggest one. But uh, in general, Cruz, Modric, Casemiro, that was the anchor, and now Casemiro's gone, and he's tearing up the Premier League, and now it's uh, Valverde. Um, th- those three are the most important ones. Courtois, uh, Courtois is very important as well. Obviously, not just in that previous Champions League game, but in general, when he's on, he's you know, and when he's in, in big games, he does quite well. But yeah, Benzema had lights out season. Benzema and Vinny working together, but the core of that team, the core, uh, um, you know, and obviously Kamavinga's coming on, Dechuamani's coming on. Uh, but you know, it's it's right now Modric, Cruz, Valverde. That's really, and then before that, Modric, Cruz, and Casemiro. The midfield of that team is was. I would argue the best midfield in in their era um, in the sport. How do you see a fight between Strickland and Whitaker going? Can Sean's game get nullified with those parries via faking jabs? I think he would get, I think it's a bad fight for Sean. I think he would get very fooled by the, um, the setups and the timing of a guy like Whitaker. Cause you know, when you have to make those quick reactions, it's to somebody not committing in that the style where you can make quick reactions like this, you know, where he does, where he's kind of parrying. We talked about lead hand, rear hand, all that stuff. Um, you can do that when guys are kind of like, you know, they're just moving and they're jabbing and whatever. But 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 Whitaker lets that front arm dangle and then he kind of waits. And then there's this delayed blitz and all that kind of stuff and it's weird angles. I think that'd be a real bad fit for, for, for uh, Sean Strickland. Valentina stated that in Singapore versus Santos, the weigh-ins were 48 hours instead of 24 hours ahead. Um, do you think that played a major role? Is that true? I'd have to double-check that, number one. And number two, no. I don't think that played much of a role. Uh, hi, Luke. I'm a new fan. I found you on TikTok. Yeah, I'm on TikTok, y'all. I got uh, Othello runs my TikTok channel. Um, dude, we've had a couple things. Now, excuse me. We've had a... And it's all credit to Othello. Blow up on there. We had... My Black Adam review hit three million views. My one on um, on uh, hating women from MK got to two point two. Um, dude, like TikTok is, is blowing up for us. So go follow us on TikTok, please. Anyway, have you considered doing a lifestyle political show? Not a big UFC fan, but I'll take your take. I I get asked this time to time. The answer is uh, Othello really wants me to. I got a meeting with Othello next week. We're gonna see what he comes up with. See if some ideas. Maybe if I created a membership on this channel, maybe that's something I could do. I don't know that I would want to mix it with the public stuff. I think I would want to make that extras for the people who wanted it. Um, otherwise, I think I would be wise to stick to what my um, occupational um, inclinations have been, which is MMA. Uh, Luke, do you think that RDA would have fared? How, how do you think uh, RDA would have fared against Connor had the fight gone ahead in 2016? And how about if they fight now? Um, I thought RDA would have done well, but Connor was just, you know, on the hottest of hot streaks at that time. Um, hard to say because RDA could wrestle, he could take punishment, but you know, like a big shot, like Fazeev can throw, like would put him out. Ah, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. I think I would say this. I think RDA would have had a really good chance to win. But like, could I confidently say he would have beaten him? I don't know about that. That's a little hard to say now. Uh, thoughts on Grasso versus Chev? We'll talk about this tomorrow on MK. Yeah, I like it just fine. I don't know how great Grasso's chances are, but 
Shevchenko's the weight class champion. It's a new challenge. She's the next person up. She's been on a good win streak. Like, sure. Thank you, my friend. Thoughts on Chingy's KOing Superbond. Would you agree the caucus region fighters have taken over MMA now and are breaking through in pure striking? Yeah, so he is from No Bros All Manos podcast, All Hands. Um, so, again, I, I everyone knows, I'm being very clear, among the composite sports in MMA, kickboxing is one of the ones that I have just the least amount of familiarity and you know, reasonably and helpful knowledge about. Um, but having watched the contest, I was blown away by it. He's from Azerbaijan, as I understand it. Azerba- Dude, that whole area, the Azerbaijanis, my good friend, he is Persian because they were ended up in Iran and they all speak Farsi. But his dad is from the Farsi-speaking side of Azerbaijan. Um, so they're all, like every time an Azerbaijani guy does really well, they all get pretty interested in it. But of course, beyond that, you have the Armenians, you have the Georgians. The Georgians, this big fight, this Morav Dawalashvili fight against Pyotr Jan, you know, remember the Georgians and the Russians were uh, essentially at war not too recently. That's a big fight. That's a big fight for Georgia. Um, and uh, to say nothing of being, you know, all the former Soviet satellite states, all they're involved and then beyond that, you know, which also, by the way, would also include Kazakhstan is sort of on its way. And then you already know about folks out of the Ossetia region, which has been true in international freestyle wrestling for a long time, as well as other sports beyond that, too. Yeah, uh, he looked unbelievable. He beat the shit out of Superbon. Um, I was blown. And, you, and, and by the way, all the prognostications were basically right in the sense that all of them said Chingiz is aggressive, heavy with the boxing combinations, forward pressure. The whole nine yards, and that Superbond's going to have like wait him out a little bit and try to keep it at distance and use things at kickboxing range rather than boxing range. And some people thought that Superbond would, in fact, wait him out and, in fact, win. That was wrong, but that dynamic was basically correct from the word go. It was just who was going to assert it, and that was Alizov. He's amazing. He is a fucking dynamo to watch. I'm so glad that one is involved in. And I gotta say, man, you know, Ch- Chatri Sityatong. Uh, I don't know if I have anything nice to say about him, but the one product is great. <laughs> Dude, the one product is amazing. It's amazing. It's I've said it a million times. It's the most unique product outside of UFC for MMA fans by far, by far, by far. Um, and this globalization of MMA, I know the term carries some political saliency i don't mean it in that way i'm just saying more generally like the globalization the growth of the global game and its interconnectedness in terms of the sport itself has been just it just makes the sport better it makes everything better uh luke uh i checked out necro pedophile by cannibal corpse yes please explain the best you can why people enjoy music or anything it's sort of very simple one it's designed to be a line crossing thing right people have this sense of norms or customs or expectations or sensibilities the entire idea is to slash that to pieces like whatever it is break it up blow it up attack it and and death metal really sort of speaks to that in terms of again i don't like a lot of death metal bands i like a few of them and you know i can listen to some other ones but i'm not like I don't go to death metal festivals and I'm like, these are all my favorite bands. I don't have that many that are really my favorite bands. I've got ones more notably that I've talked about, but you know, I'm not big in that sense, but part of this is it's this anti-establishment anti-norm kind of pushback 
as an artistic expression. The other part too is like, why do people like horror movies? Why do people like slasher movies? Horror as a genre of entertainment is something that people like for better or for worse. And it, you know, um, whether that appeals to you or not is sort of a different thing, but basically it's the combination of the two folks. You guys don't remember this. I vividly remember this when Senator, I think Bob Dole at the time was speaking out against Cannibal Corpse and uh, acts like Two Life Crew. And I think Cannibal Corpse was banned in Germany for a time, right? The, they were on the front lines in the 90s of the free speech wars, right? Like, yes, what they're saying is so out there that it was causing this, you know, leftovers of the satanic panic that was you know, that gripped the country in the 80s a little bit. Uh, and that was mixed with evangelical norms again we're going back to norms and traditions and customs but cannibal corpse is on the front lines of that man not anymore they've kind of toned up if, if anything death metal lyrics have gotten softer over time like they have an old song called um was it is it um stripped raped and strangled i don't know that you can talk about even now rape in that kind of and i'm not listen understand something they that whole genre is designed to do like, what are the customs and norms? Let's attack all of them. So like, this is vicious material. Obviously it's very, um, it's done almost performatively in the way in which it's done it. I'm not suggesting that people should write songs about that. That's I'm neither here nor there. I'm simply pointing out like they've actually responded to the way the culture has moved and they've kind of gotten away with it and been a little bit more general about like, you know, red before black and, um, uh, what's what, what's the last one that Dying Fetus has? The last album, Wrong One to Fuck With. You know, sort of things in that way. But they used to be much, much heavier and meaner and eviler if that's such a thing. Uh, they've actually dialed it back a little bit. Uh, can you give a brief rundown of Tatiana Suarez for new fans who are completely unfamiliar with her? Yeah, she had a uh, something of a decorated background in amateur wrestling. Um, she was likened when she was going around as the female Habib. It's not really the same kind of... Um, uh, it, the comparison is a little bit tortured, but just understand something. What has been one of the... I, I asked, who did I ask about this? Erin um, Blanchfield. She kind of no-sold it. I'm a little bit still more curious about it, which is this idea around um, the growth of women's wrestling. Now, Blanchfield is well-rounded in the, to in the again, it's my favorite word. She's well-rounded in the broader and larger sense of the game. So when I asked her about the improvement in women's wrestling, the new vanguard of training is she's taking it all in at once. But I can tell you as an observer, like the women's wrestling game, whatever else you want to say about striking or the combination of all the different phases has gotten much better much better they're doing double legs now there's a lot fewer head tosses they understand positioning better suarez has a huge lead on them right think about the lead it wasn't just that ronda used her judo her ability to use those positions for takedowns given the overall grappling slash wrestling ability because if you're underhooking standing that's wrestling too was she was just she had a lead on everyone she had a lead suarez has that lead she is athletically in your face she is strong. She has just lights out takedowns. She has advanced wrestling game that you didn't at the time, which, you know, she was making her way up. What It's better now, but like she was ahead of her peers in that sense. Hard nosed, a game, a wrestling game that would remind you of the men's side at that time. Then on top of it, she has dynamic control on the ground and very good savage ground and pound matched with positional advancement. It's not one or the other. She can do all of it. Uh, she's a fucking handful. 
She's a handful. She is stronger in many ways than her competitors. Her wrestling is far advanced. She has already, uh, I would say, more dynamic and advanced methods of ground control with, with ground and pound. She doesn't do it the old school way. She is part of that new school just on the women's side, like, you know, running through. Um, so that's the best way to understand her. You can look up her various backgrounds on her Wikipedia entry and all of her uh, her wrestling accolades. She didn't make an Olympic team or anything like that, but um, but she you can just watch the way which she wrestles in MMA. If you have Fight Pass, go do it. You can watch the way she wrestles, and again, it will be a little bit less true than it, now versus when she made her UFC debut because the game is moving up quite rapidly to that point. She's missed a long time. But even now, I would say that she probably retains some significant advantages. She has a physical style of wrestling and control mixed with ground and pound and positional advancement that just a lot of women at 115 either don't have or can't deal with or both. Were there any philosophers or writings that you read while you're studying that really blew you away? I've talked about this before. David Hume was the big one, or which uh, Robert Nozick, John Rawls, Martin Buber, um, you know, to an extent, honestly, even Aristotelian ethics have, were like very informative to, under, to, to to study. Contributed to most of your views on life and the world. Uh, what are you, WTG, quitting vape? I don't know what WTG stands for. I haven't vaped in a while. It, it has been annoying and awful, but I haven't done it. Um, I've been really trying to quit, so we'll see how that goes. Wish me luck. But yeah, the ones I have on my shelf. Um, yeah, Foucault. I know he was a f complete fucking weirdo, but Michael Foucault. Um, yeah. The basics, really. All right. Feels like the days of the best fight and the best are vanishing. Francis leaving adds a new facet to that. How's the UFC pay fighters and keep them hungry? Um, Well, guys, I got to, to sort of tell you, like... I think one thing that you, MMA has that boxing doesn't is it does have a little bit more of a next man up culture, which is partly a top down pressure from the UFC. But I also feel like there's a little bit of a martial arts spirit that goes into how fighters conduct themselves relative to, to boxers. And I think some of that will go away if the Ali Act is passed. Like guys are just going to make more rational decisions about opponent choice. But. Relative to boxing, I am at least curious about the prospect of that martial arts code, about the willingness to step up, about sort of how the, the, the general practice and expectations that have kind of been inculcated into fighters generation, frankly, over generation. That might be get passed on as a practice, as a kind of like a norm to aspire or hold up to. Um, but other than that, you got like, how do you pay them and keep them hungry? You guys, they're going to decline fights that they don't want or there's going to be fracturing between rosters or i don't think it's true at all that we're not getting the best find the best you're getting a lot of stuff extra to that i don't know if you're getting a reduction in that um in any kind of really historically significant way look why are people acting like the Jones that beat Rampage, DC, and others is the one that will be at UFC 285 after most recent performances because it's a reasonable thing to think. Um, it's at least worth considering that that would be a th like, why, why? Okay, better question. Why would you outright dismiss it? Um, I get being skeptical of it. I, I certainly understand that. 
But if Jones hasn't earned the benefit of at least some kind of doubt about, you know, your limits on him, uh, I don't know who could, right? I don't know who could. Uh, you know, listen, you guys know I've had a a an undulating and bizarre relationship with John over the years from very good relationship to a very bad one and um to whatever it is it now i don't even to nothing it is nothing now uh and you know i don't i just think he's a really terrible person but uh you shouldn't underestimate him oh he breaks all the rules how could he get away with it he just that's all he ever did that's all he ever did uh perhaps that dynamic is coming to a close Again, I understand the skepticism, but the dismissiveness around John Jones, I don't get that. I don't get that. Uh, one more so you can afford the power slap <laughs> pay-per-view. Can you do? Let me explain something to you. If you buy the power slap pay-per-view, it's one of the saddest fucking things I've ever thought about. Like there's like starving people in South America or, you know, various parts of the world that could really use that money and you're giving it to hirsute dungeons and dungeons and dragons chubby weirdos who uh slap each other for money uh man i mean i'm not the biggest guy on you know defending effective altruism but it is that is an impost that you how would you ever morally defend that <laughs> Guys, I had 50 bucks. I could have given it to the American Red Cross or Doctors Without Borders or whatever. But instead, uh, you know, whatever cause that there may be. But instead, I had to give it to, um, you know, these uh, juggalos who wanted to slap each other for, you know, probably very modest pay. That, 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 that UFC or whoever, power slap, whatever, is going to take the majority of anyway. Like, how do you think that shit's going to go? It's going to go different from how it's gone for the fighters, really? They're gonna they're gonna pay them vast sums, uh, <laughs> like to say nothing of the taste level. I mean, I mean seriously, it's like I don't know how to explain it. It's like almost as if someone's like, um, you know, oh, you know what would good on, go good on nachos? Someone's like, yeah, cheese, and no, they're like, no, 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 soap. You should put soap on that. That's what really would liven up those corn chips. You're like, what the fuck are you talking? It doesn't even make any sense. That's how it sounds to me when someone's like, yeah, I want to watch slapping. It's like, I, I can't even, I, I mean, truly wasting your life. I mean, that is the, that is the, that is about as close to the apex example I could think of, of absolutely throwing your life away. Tr uh, irredeemable taste levels, irredeemable. Um, Okay. This was the question, right? How do you see the recently announced Jan Dewalishvili fight going? Well, it's three rounds, right? So that's better for Jan. Um, Jan can has had a lot of practice trying to extract himself from things. So if he gets pressed up against the fence, he could probably defend the takedown and like get Dewalishvili off of him. Uh, he's going to have to discipline him and hurt him as he intercepts him. If he can't do that and he's just fighting off wrist control or underhooking or extricating himself from takedowns, he can't really win. You saw that's what basically happened to Jose Aldo. 
yeah, Jose Aldo didn't get beaten up. Like nothing really bad happened to him. And yes, it was at elevation and all that stuff. But you couldn't really launch any meaningful offense. Like you, you have to get past that hump. That that really is sort of the goal here. So let's see how much time he spends wrestling. To what extent he's able to discipline his forward movement with strikes. Uh, what he uses to do that with, how long it takes him to hand fight, how long a Dewalish really is able to either discover or hold the back, all kinds of stuff. I uh, hope you enjoy London. I would be there, but I have commitments. Just asking, what kind of emails are you accepting? Emails? I don't know. Email me. LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. Uh, where does Christian Lee stand in the lightweight welterweight picture? I'm going to stick with the lightweight one because the welterweight, I, don't, I mean, I realize he's got both, but um, you mean globally? He certainly deserves to be taken seriously. I still think he's wet behind the ears in terms of his overall development. Um, he's got moxie. Uh, you know, he really does. And he's got, a, uh, I like his striking game. I like his general overall offense. But there's a little bit of seasoning, I think, that is still required before we can have a place him among the very best in that in that weight class across the world. Uh, managed to get some UFC 285 tickets for friends. And I... What are some do's and don'ts for a UFC event, or rather, what would make the event more enjoyable? Dude, I think if you're paying for a UFC event, I think you should get there on time. I've said this a million times. If you're going to be in the area, you should take advantage of the free events. There's meet and greets all over town. There's the weigh-ins. There's usually going to be a press conference. There used to be an open workout, but you know those are mostly gone. Um, 285 is going to be in Vegas. Yeah, there's going to be stuff all over the place. By the way, various media outlets are going to have not just a, well, I don't even know if we're going to be there, but you know there's going to be live shows that usually the big big events like this. Um, I know the Schmo does stuff you can go check out. Like, just go. It's not just the fight itself. Like, go take in the week and go take out, go take in all the different opportunities that come with it. So that's the first thing I'd say. Beyond that, don't waste your ticket. I would show up as early as you can to enjoy the fights. Now, if some people don't want to sit there for very long, I understand that. But uh, don't woo because that would mean you're a low-level primate, and I don't think that's a great thing to be if you don't have to be. Um, and uh, yeah, don't fight people in the audience. Don't wear a fight kit like a weirdo. Just be normal. Drink a few beers, have a good time, and go home. It's not that. I mean, it's just, it's a sporting event. Like, what's the best? What's do's and don'ts? Don't fist fight over a hot dog. I mean, that's the same. You know, it doesn't change uh, from one sporting event to the other. Uh, higher ceiling, Mokayev or Tetsuro Tyra. Ooh, boy, that's a good one. Um, maybe Tyra. I don't know. Mokayev can wrestle. He can strike as well. He can't strike and wrestle. I mean, there is just no ground and pound with him. That's a big problem. Uh, he's got time. He's got plenty of time. But um, it might be Tyra. Tyra is a little bit more fully put together. What are some up-and-coming Eastern European power-slapping hammers we should be on the lookout for? Still blocked on IG, but don't worry. <laughs> Fellow vaping vet. Um, you know who you should follow on Twitter? Let me get his name if I can. Yeah, I will tell you who it is. Uh, okay. There's a guy who calls himself uh, Fedor's nephew on Twitter. It's at F-D-R-N-P-H-W. So they, he just took out basically the E's and the O's and all the vowels, essentially. Uh, Fedor's nephew. He's the topology editor. You know what? I'll pull him up. How about that? I'll pull him up. Let's do that. Let me so you can see him. 
Uh, this dude's great. And doesn't have a ton of followers, but he's smart. And he covers this part of the world really well. So let me show it to you. We'll take that off. This dude. Right here. And I'll blow it up so you can see it a little bit better. Right here. Follow him. He does this for a living. He knows all of the ins and outs. Oops. No, not now. Thank you. Thank you, Elon Musk. I'm good. Uh, follow that guy. He will take good care of you. Uh, he just did like a list of prospects the other day, in fact. Yeah. Murad uh, Gusenov is a guy um, he's been talking about. I mean, there's all kinds of ones he gets into. Um, yeah. Follow him. Follow him. All right, should Kamaru Usman regain the welterweight strap versus Leon? Do you see a path for him to restart the welterweight goat conversation given his age? He, yes. Conversely, would Leon winning by decision be more impressive than a second KO? Yes, it would also be very impressive because he was not winning that one by decision, let me tell you. But like to be able to beat Kamaru Usman in that way, yes. Um the welterweight goat conversation is interesting because you could argue he's already really there, and if he wins like two more, would that really put him over the edge? So yes, he could resume it. Um, that is possible. He could do that. Yes. In the past, you mentioned a colleague wrote a book about the Roman Empire. What was the name of the author and the book? Talk about Patrick Wyman. Is that who we're talking about? Patrick Wyman. Um, he, the guy from the fall of Rome and all that stuff. Yeah. I, I, I think I'd have to see exactly which, which one you're referencing, but I believe that's it. Patrick Wyman. Yeah. Uh, okay. If Alexander Volkanovsky beats Islam Makachev, right? Will that be the biggest upset in UFC history? No. Your thoughts on why so many are writing Alex off because Islam is amazing and Alex is moving up a weight class. Uh, and basically, it comes down to Alex has shown some weaknesses in the very particular skill set sweet spot of Makachev, again, up a weight class. That's why people are being dismissive. But it wouldn't be the biggest. Just from When you say biggest, it means odds perspective. If you wanted to say, like, would – we had this conversation. Um, you'll see it, Brian and I, with Chuck Mendenhall. We did a UFC 284 preview already, a pregame preview. And uh, Brian's of the belief, and I think it's when you really begin to think about it, it's not so crazy. If 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 uh, if Volkanovski goes in there, let's say he stops Makachev, like looks good, it's competitive, but looks good, and then finishes him off, you might want to start considering him for like not the number one greatest of all time, but that might begin to put him in the com conversation of like the top fighters ever. advice for a purple belt on how to restrain a big strong untrained person in an altercation also how not to panic and gas out <laughs> if you're a purple belt you shouldn't be panicking and gassing out um you should be a little bit more calm the first thing i'd say also don't pull guard don't do that shit um it's hard for me to give this kind of advice because i was always one of the bigger dudes um you know, every time someone meets me, they're always like, you're much bigger than I thought you were. I'm like, right, I know, I am. Um, 
advice for a purple belt? Well, I don't know how to give an answer to that because like, what kind of purple belt are you? Are you a 115 pound woman or a 185 pound man? Um, are you 40 or are you 20? Like you can be a purple belt and be all different kinds of things. I would just say if you have, you have like a purple belt is like in many people's opinion is like the first belt of expertise. It's not expertise, but it's the first belt on the way there. Like the first two belts are kind of like the beginner ish, right? And then you transition after that. Um, once you hit purple, um, although, you know, Nikki Rod was blue belt and beating everyone at ADCC. So, you know, it, it can mean a lot of different things, but that's one way to look at it. Like if I'm just sort of teaching how to restrain someone big, um, yeah, God, let me think about this. Jesus. I mean, this is not what I do. Like teaching people how to restrain people, what I would do. Uh, make grips quickly. Um, move. Try to move them around. Try to take them off their balance. Um, at the right range, whatever that was, or the right angle. I try to get an angle on them. Try to push them around, pull them around. Right? Dude, usually when I was working at the bar, I mean, this is, you should ask a self-defense expert. But, like, when I was working at the bar in my 20s, the first thing I would ever want to do was I would either want to wrap someone up if they were much smaller right? Because if I could wrap them up, I could pick them up and literally just walk them out of the building. Uh, the other one was, I'm just going to get them flat on their back. You know, I was going to get them flat on their back. If they were big, what I would usually try to do is, um, I only had like one or two incidents where that was really an issue. Yeah, I, you know, you, you would be better off asking someone who, you know, we're talking like jujitsu strategy. I mean, it's a different conversation, but a big, strong, untrained person, they're going to be spazzing. They're going to be coming forward. You should be moving you should be trying to maintain distance, right? And if they're going to close, um, you want to make sure you have, a, I, I would be working on one, at least one kind of sleeve control, right? To make them focus on that. I'd be trying to move them and push them at an angle. I'd be trying to get to their back. Um, all those things. Did you see Elon Musk's takeover of the UFC's YouTube page? Well, it wasn't his, but uh, yeah, I did see that they got run over a little bit. That was fucking hilarious. Some red pill folks defending Tate trying to breathe reason into his most ridiculous takes while ignoring the criminal shit. Like, how, why? We've been over the Andrew Tate stuff. I don't have a whole lot to add more to it, except that, again, I think there's a, I think there's a lot of really lost young men out there. Really, really, truly, truly, totally lost. Don't understand who they are. Don't understand their place in the world. Don't understand their relationship to women, authority figures, uh, their community, anything. Just totally unmoored from it all and i think when you're very confused a guy like that sounds very convincing but again another guy who you know who did i see today he's he uh it was candace owens uh but he, both of them i think have spoken out against therapy it's like dude i don't <laughs> where did that one come from right like therapy is not good for you or uh bad for you potentially even like this is i this is so obviously insanely wrong i don't i mean i don't even know what to say about it like showing up and ordering a shit sandwich as opposed to a chicken parm like i'm making more food analogies again because i'm hungry i haven't eaten in a while but i mean i don't i don't, I don't it's like you know gravity's a myth like who does that who the fuck does that totally confused people totally it's just it's i, I don't even know how to respond to something so so silly
as like fair you like keep it in let it let it burn inside your chest what the fuck are you talking about lady that's the worst advice you could ever give someone <laughs> yo that 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 uh that wound on your leg that's just growing you should just ignore it like d- d- be a man don't wash it like i'm sorry what the fuck are you talking about just completely completely out of her depth Prime Romero versus Hamzat at 185. Who wins? Hamzat. Uh, all right. As someone from Indonesia, I find it interesting that as the fourth most populous country, we don't have any presence in MMA. Why is this? Great question. I don't know. Also, Indonesia dom- uh, Indonesia dominates um, martial arts cinema as well. I don't. I, I'm not in Indonesia enough to know what the answer is there. I, uh, I I'm going to guess. Um, although it certainly made some rebounds, I'm going to guess that. There must be some level of economic per capita wealth that has something to do with it. But candidly, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is there. Prime Tyson versus Prime Bow. Bow. Prime Trinidad versus Prime Mosley. Trinidad. Prime Zoo versus Floyd. Floyd. Uh, thoughts on these great missed boxing matches? I would have, I mean, I don't have much to add, but I would have loved to have seen any of them. Not so much the Zoo versus Floyd one. I don't, I don't, there's not much mystery to that, but like Tyson versus Bo, yeah, that would have been amazing. Rewatch some Pride Heavyweight used to be much more fun. How much of a role has USADA and the UFC overall had on the low health of that division? Nah, I don't blame them for that. I don't blame them for that. It's the state of, yes, I think there are things that you could do from a rule-based incentive structure to make fights in general better, and they would have perhaps a pronounced effect on heavyweight, but um, there are just bigger issues with that division globally that make that less of a thing you could point to for USADA or the UFC, quite frankly. I saw Josh T. Josh Thompson? Condescending at the, quote, little Silicon Valley nerds, end quote, who make FU money? MFR, is it my fault you couldn't cut it in a hard math class and they could? I haven't heard any of this. I don't, I don't even know if you're talking about Josh Thompson, who make FU money. Uh, I don't mind them for making money or being nerds. I was a nerd in high school, but um, yeah, I don't even know what the fuck he said. I don't know what you want me to do with this. Like, People send me stuff being like, hey, someone so said something, and I'm like, then I'll check it out, and it's kind of half right, and you know, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. Uh, very generous donation, Leonard. Thank you. Thank you for that as well. All right, let's go to this one. Any advantages of Connor having a rod in his shin when fighting again? Uh, no, not really. I mean, it certainly creates some in- integrity, but it's within the bone itself. It's not like the metal is slamming into the other person. Yes, and it gives the bone integrity, but I don't think I don't think that there's anything meaningful. I, I have a friend who has to go through metal detectors that way. He's had it his whole life. Um, it doesn't. My understanding is it wouldn't like turn him into Wolverine from the knee down or something. Someone says, please do some sort of political show. Would love to chance to discuss our mutual disdain, spelled wrong, for the military industrial complex. Yeah, I mean, if you guys want to see one, you can email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. Again, uh, I'm going to have a meeting with Othello. We're going to talk about the year ahead. We can put something together, but it needs to make sense. And I don't want to really alienate people who aren't really here for that. Uh, thank you for your content. How do you think 2022 rates for headlines 
for MMA and boxing. Bad news everywhere for both sports, I feel. Well, 2022 wasn't so bad. It's the start of 2023. Um, so, yeah, the headlines are bad now. They weren't really... I mean, yeah, okay, you had some of the Kraus stuff. That was bad. Um, but that wasn't... And some fights have fallen through. They didn't make Spence versus uh, Crawford. Yeah, I mean, there was... Okay, there was some. There was some. I didn't think any of it was all that existential. Interesting, and in some cases quite big but not huge didn't feel huge to me the problem with Rawls and Nozick is incommensurability you mean incompatibility one is a response to the other um go check out Taco City on 12th Street I think you mean okay fantastic salsa and tacos the margaritas are only okay but that's probably for the best I think you mean on 12th Street Northeast yeah I've seen it I've never been it's by the yes market down there um, let's see what Thomas is pissed. used to be. I've been offered a job in the field that I'm in school for, but I'm nervous and don't know if it's the right opportunity. How have you decided which opportunities are right for you? Um, well, many times you don't know till you do it, but the question is merely, what are you trying to get out of the job? Right? So what do you want this job to do for you? Do you want this job to pay you like a certain amount of money? And does it do that? Do you want this job to set up a future opportunity? Does it do that? Do you want this job to um, give you certain kinds of experience you couldn't get elsewhere? Like functionally, what is the purpose of this job in your life right now? What, what to go back to a previous way to think about it, what would this, what would accepting this position now at this firm solve for that you need both for the present situation as well as whatever long-term goals and i guess you have to kind of ask yourself does it solve any of those in a meaningful important kind of way or yes it does but i could wait for another one and really get that how rare is this opportunity you need to balance it between how accessible this is and what it solves for relative to what you want if that is all unclear then probably the job is not for you but you should be able to have some kind of a rubric that you can examine where this job fits in and what kind of way it fits in to get an answer about what's good for you, what's not good for you, what is it, how does it meet a goal, how does it not meet a goal, what what value am I trying to get out of this job? And sometimes people are just trying to get a check, they don't give a damn. Sometimes they, the check is not great, but oh my God, this is gonna set me up for a subsequent opportunity, let's really examine whether or not this is a good idea, right? You have to figure that part out. Have I ever watched the show Gangs of London? No. From what I understand, it's the same fight choreographer that did the Raid 1 and 2. Well, that is a good choreographer. And as a huge fan of those films, too, I fully endorse the show. I've not seen it, but now I'm going to... Gangs of London. All right, I'll check that out. Because if you haven't seen the Raid 1 and 2, you just haven't seen martial arts cinema. Oh, but I saw... Blah, blah, blah. Shut the fuck up. You haven't seen fight choreography like this. You haven't. Oh, I saw John Wick. That's close, but it ain't it. Is Dana White holding back the progress of the UFC at this point? Will fighter pay and healthcare be a priority for the next president? The next president, guys, the UFC is not going to change until the law makes them. Let me say that one more time. The UFC is not going to change unless the law makes them. Now, they'll make some small changes, some potentially, like the putting the sunset clauses. They weren't compelled by law in that case. But I think on the advice of their lawyers to avoid subsequent problems, meaning that it was going to cause future legal headaches, they decided to put those in there. And so here we are. So it wasn't exactly like a law was passed and it made them do it. But I'm just trying to point out here, some kind of other force has to make them do it. 
and a new president is just going to carry out the mission as such. And he might be more, he or she might be more humane or whatever, but they're not going to change their business, but their company makes too much money in order to change their business model. Like, how would you justify that? How would, how would the owners justify that? Hey, let's make less fucking money. Like, they're not going to do that. They're going to have to be made to do it either through all the methods we've discussed, which we're not going to go back over again. The question is, is he holding them back at this point? I've said this before. I, I, I've, I've lived through the Dana White era from it's basically it's almost exact beginning. Not quite, but pretty close. Okay? I have seen the value that's been provided. There is very much an argument for a certain time and place. His participation was hugely beneficial for them. And as an important figurehead for the business, he, he retains a certain amount of value. I do think he provides some value to them. But he also provides a lot of costs to them in terms of like all of the negative press and that, that goes into his style of business dealings. It used to be that people would look at his like, F you this, F way, I'm going to get after this guy and we're always going to be aggro. People used to see that as like a, a refreshing alternative to Roger Goodell. And what I've been saying for quite a long time is that that will be true for some people, but the reason why executives in other businesses don't do that is because it carries long-term costs that they don't want to deal with. Some of those chickens are coming home to roost a little bit now with Dana White. Like, there's a reason why people don't engage in business conduct that way. It's because for the long term, it's not necessarily the most beneficial way to do that. Um, and I've made the point this point before. I do think if you removed him from the UFC, there would be some short-term costs. But long-term, I don't think that that's really the case at all. Um, I think that it could very much, this enormous operation could very much function without him and be just fine. And I think people who are saying it can't be just have a real poverty of imagination. The MMA community has a homophobia, homophobia problem, and the fact that it doesn't admit it is part of the issue. Yeah, they have a huge one. Not sure what has to be done about it, and that's coming from a, a, a cis straight guy. I don't really, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, it does. I mean, the fact that you've never had a truly while on the roster and active openly gay UFC fighter. Now, of course, we've had it on the female side, but I mean on the male side, which kind of tells you about the lingering, um, you know, worry or potential sources of shame for folks or whatever. We've got a long way to go. We've got a long way to go. I will tell you that every time I speak out about something like this, I'm not going to go on a rant here. I'm just saying every time I've spoken about something like this, I always get emails from folks after the fact, some that are very mad at me, but some who are like, you know, thank God someone is finally saying something because there's really just, no, again, this is not a community that's ever going to look in the mirror and have like a real honest conversation with itself in general about its flaws or setbacks or issues. This is going to be a community that is very much going to think that um, full steam ahead, let's go, time to rock. It's not really ever going to slow down and be like, are we doing this the right way? Or could we, could we be doing this better? Are we doing this equitably? Are we doing this fairly? Um, are we hurting people along the way? What's a safer way to do this? Whatever. The, it's just not going to do that again. That's why the government has to regulate it. There's no internal mechanism, even for things like safety, really, nothing binding anyway, with inside the community to police itself. It doesn't have that. It actually has to come from an external source. And so cultural norms will eventually, I think, help things a little bit. Um, but frankly, until there is... Um, I'm just going to I'm going to say this the best way I can. The amount of ignorance, uh, I won't say hate exactly, but certainly the amount of ignorance around um, this issue about, I should say, uh, 
people of a different sexual orientation being in our community, in our orbit, in our families, in our lives, there is just a lot of repressive, frankly, retrograde attitudes in mixed martial arts today. And um, until that is policed by whatever entity can police, police that, I think you're going to just sort of see it continue. I have actually, I've actually seen it in some ways get better over time, in some ways worsen. It's been maybe overall better, but uneven. Lastly, oh, almost lastly. If the UFC wants to wash away the memory of Francis, should they sign MVP, Michael Venom Page, or Bouchesha and put marketing dollars behind them? No. Question number two, what would be the UFC's ideal dream signee right now? Ideal dream signee right now would be, um, honestly, that kid Malikin. I'm telling you, Anatoly Malikin out of one would be big. Uh, I think Vadim Nemkov, Vadim Nemkov wouldn't be a dream signing, but it would be a good one, a really good one for them. Uh, an AJ McKee, a pit bull, um, a dream signing. There's not a lot of people out there that are like you're like, oh my god, uh, Renier de Ritter, Bouchesha long term maybe. There's not. It, it, there's we don't have a ton of players in the MMA space who have a lot of big names. Um, there's Christian Lee, maybe potentially down the road, something like that. I have hopes that White's garbage slap league will bring scrutiny to him by mainstream media when a bizarre accident happens. Wishful thinking, yeah. I mean, I think sort of preying on the guy's downfall is going to be a waste of your time. But could uh, could something like let me just say something too? And White's like, oh, they only take three or so slaps per event. It's like, dude. Two reasons to just not accept that. I'm not saying it's not true. Two reasons to not accept it. One, we actually don't know what the cost is over the course of a year, how many slaps they actually take, how many events they do, what the cumulative load of punishment looks like. It's not distributed to the body. It's only to the head. What does it actually look like? No one really knows the answer to this. So like this certainty that like it's much less than boxing, sorry, that is a totally indefensible claim based on what we have right now. Don't believe it. Don't buy it. Don't accept it. Second of all, I, I'm going to keep saying this, and it sounds like a radical position. It's not a radical position. And I'm not even saying this to be like uh, mean or like to go get that guy and stick it to him. I'm not saying that. I'm saying like literally you can't trust it. Guys, you cannot trust at face value anything that Dana White says. And I'm not like, again, I'm not, that sounds kind of crazy, but it's it's really not. Like the job of the promoter, forget his own history. The job of the promoter is to obfuscate in a way where you're going to present he is the promoter of power slap or whatever the fuck um the job is to obfuscate the risks or to minimize them and to talk about the great parts I, that's that is just the job entails and then specific to his history in terms of exaggeration lying on the record which we know for a fact he has done what on earth has he done at all in the course of his career to give you like blanket trust that his assessment of the safety of this is either on par or less than boxing nothing nothing you should not trust that until it's verified at all at all so it's not me saying he's not telling the truth it is possible but until it is verified you simply have no way of knowing with him just cannot accept it at all at all so tell us that bob arum story so anyway so you know and that's true to an extent for most promoters but, you know, because it's the UFC and there's much bigger implications for any potential decision or conflict that he happens to have with the fighters, again, 
I'm not accusing him of lying. I don't know if he's lying. But I'm not going to just, well, Dana White said that it's this guy, they, they take three per event. It's just much less. Okay. That means nothing. That means absolutely nothing. But don't take that at face value at all. Verify, verify, verify. All right. And I will leave you with that. Thank you, everyone, who watched today. As always, this podcast will be up on the podcast platforms tonight in audio form. If you have any questions for me, you can shoot me an email, lukethomasnews at gmail.com. Ooh, one more time. Let me put this up. If you didn't see it before, now you can. There you go. Get your tickets. London, United Kingdom. Come see us February 8th at the King's Place in London. If you're watching on the video, put your phone up to the QR code right there. You can see it, or you can go to pod-live.com. Pod-live.com to come check us out. We do have special guests. We're going to announce them. I don't know what the holdup is, but we're going to get them. Even if we didn't, come see us, but we are going to have them no matter what. So please come say hello. I would love to see you out there in London, England. Okay? Until then. Appreciate you watching. Stay frosty.